0: so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is God's word. Thank you, Bonnie. Morning, everyone. Good to have you all worshiping with us this morning. Um, if you were here at the beginning of service, you saw that you know, we started the first Sunday of Advent. And, and the purpose of Advent, as Terry and Cornelia shared, as you heard Bonan pray, is to help us focus on Jesus as we prepare to celebrate his birth. So as such, this morning, or this month, uh, we'll be going through an Advent series uh, called Back to Bethlehem. Pastor Jeff thought of a creative way to journey back to Bethlehem chronologically right, by looking at the roles of Jesus, but somewhat in reverse order. So this week I'll be speaking and talking about his current role, as high priest. Next week we'll look at his resurrection, followed by his death. And then on Christmas Sunday, uh, we'll look at Jesus' birth. So getting into this morning's message, and I'm wondering, uh, I know many youth are, many college students are, you know, uh, but the rest of you, I'm not sure if you're big Facebook users or not, um, whether you are or not, if you're a big Facebook user, um, you know, studies are finding that maybe that's not such a good thing. Um, Recent research has shown that um, more time on Facebook leads to worse mental and physical health. Uh, I came across a a research report that was just written about in August about how heavy Facebook use is related to attachment avoidance and what attachment avoidance is is the lack of intimacy and closeness um, in personal relationship. And it's probably no, no surprise to hear that, right? Because those who have difficulty connecting socially find it much more easier to hide behind a computer screen and to try to present a positive self-image of themselves when they themselves may be personally struggling with loneliness and depression, low self-esteem. And this is especially seen, studies have shown by how, many peop- how much people value the like button and the way we value ourselves by how many likes we get when we post something in comparison to others. I, mean, I know I've seen you know, some of you parents, you post cute pictures of your kids and you get all these likes from your friends. You know, Assuming my kids were younger, I mean, if I posted a cute picture of one of my kids and then I got one like and that was from my wife, you know, I'd be like, well, what's going on here? And I'd be thinking, you know, maybe people don't really like me. Or, I'm not that valuable, I'm not worth that much. You know, and related for those who do post, do we do so because we're trying to create a positive self-image of ourselves? You know, look at the places I got to travel to, look at the restaurants I got to eat at, look at the dishes I get to try. You know, sorry to those of you who don't get to do these things. And then for those of us on the receiving end, maybe some of us don't mind because we think it's a way to keep up with their friends, but studies have shown it makes us actually into voyeurs rather than close friends. Karen North, professor of digital, uh, social media, and director at the USC uh, Annenberg School, shared people spend time peering into the lives of their friends, reading posts and updates, looking at photos and feeling like they are catching up with their friend, yet frequently people don't engage with that person. So we feel lonely because... The experience of looking at people without the interaction or validation sometimes makes us feel rejected or ignored, or we just feel that our friends are not treating us like friends. But she added, we are doing the same thing to them by looking without interacting. You know, so it's easier to hide behind a computer screen rather than engage with people. And I wonder whether we do the same with Jesus. What keeps us from coming fully? The Lord. You know, maybe it's because there are parts of us we'd rather hide. Maybe the sins we struggle with. Maybe the parts of us we really don't like. You know, our self image, our identity. Makes us wonder whether Jesus would want to interact with such a person. I know that at the times I failed over and over and over again. I don't feel like I deserve to come to Jesus. So I hide from him. And on the other hand, maybe we don't come to Jesus because we don't really think he's all that. You know, sure, we sing songs about how great and awesome he is. We just sang a song earlier, you know, saying, Jesus, you're all I need. But deep down inside, maybe we don't really believe that. You know, later in in the book of Hebrews, the author writes, or the author actually commends the Hebrews in his writing for how in the early days of the faith, they were willing to endure hardship and suffering because they knew as he pens, that they had a better and lasting possession, namely Jesus. But maybe we don't really see Jesus as that. You know, we've been disappointed or hurt by some of the things he's done or hasn't done in our lives. And so these are the things we're going to talk about this morning. To give you a bit of background, Hebrews, as you could guess, was written to Jewish Christians. And these Christians were enduring ridicule and persecution by other Jews who were not thrilled about their conversion to Christianity and were pressuring them to try to force them to convert back to Judaism. So the author writes to encourage them to have them persevere in their faith. And in the short passage, he encourages them with two commands. Stand firm, draw near. And he gives the reasons why they should do this. Stand firm. The first reason why the author tells the Jewish Christians to stand firm is because of Jesus' completed role. Jesus' completed role. It says in verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who ascended into the heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly or stand firm to the faith we profess. So Jesus, who ascended into heaven, now acts as a high priest, on our behalf. And you may ask, well, what's the big deal about that? I mean, what's, what's the big deal with him being a high priest? And to see the importance of this, we have to go back to the Old Testament to see what the role of the high priest was back then and how Jesus fulfilled that role. So God ordained in the Old Testament that there be this high priest to act as the main representative between him and the people of Israel. Though the people would offer you know sacrifices for their sins throughout the year, there was a day set aside each year when the high priest would enter the most holy part of the temple to offer sacrifice on behalf of the people for their sins. This is the day of atonement, or nowadays we hear it referred to as Yom Kippur. And very specific instructions were given in Leviticus 16 for what to do on this day. And towards the end of the chapter, In Leviticus 16, verses 29 to 30, the author writes, This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work because on this day of atonement, atonement will be made to cleanse you. Skipping down to verse 34, This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. You know, Although God gave instructions for the high priest to do this, the problem was that the high priest himself was sinful. You know, if you look at the beginning of, verse, of Leviticus 16, you'll see that in the beginning, before the priest could offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people, he had to offer a sacrifice for himself to make sure he was prepared and cleansed before he went into the most holy place, or else he could be struck dead. And then, when he was, and then when he entered the most holy place, he could only stay there long enough to you know, sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. It's not like he could just sit down and lounge around on the mercy seat and you know, have an extended conversation with God because, once again, God might strike him dead because God was so holy. And so now we contrast this with Jesus who committed no sin and lived a perfect life and died and rose again. So he, So Jesus is someone who now can sit at the right hand of his Father and remain in his presence forever. Hebrews 7, in verses 23 to 27, the author adds this. He says, you can read it, Now there have been many of those those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, created above the heavens. And like the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Did you get that part in the middle? He's not only just up in heaven, spending time with God his Father, you know, having a good time. It says he's interceding for us. If we sin, Jesus is up there interceding on our behalf to the Father to to have him forgive us. So the author is exhorting his readers, you know, Jesus is up in heaven, interceding on our behalf. He's such a superior high priest; he, you know, completely fulfilled that role. So why would you turn back to Judaism and the sinful high priest? You know, he exhorts them: stand firm in the faith. And then a second reason he tells his readers why they should stand firm in their faith is because of Jesus' complete empathy. Verse fifteen states: "For we do not have a high priest." who is unable to sympathize with their weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, but once again was without sin. You know, maybe one thing that keeps you from fully coming to God is the thought that God is distant, You know, that He's separate, and that He's so holy that He really can't understand how we feel or know what we're going through. But as we celebrate Advent, the purpose once again is to remember that Jesus did come down to earth to be born a man and take on human flesh. He had a real human body. He had a human mind. He had real human emotions. You know, sure, he could have exercised his omniscience and omnipotence as God, but when he came down to earth, he submitted them all to God his Father. The word translated sympathize in verse 15 can be translated to mean the sheer the experience of another, so Jesus' capacity to empathize with us goes beyond just an intellectual, you know, feeling or, or thought. You know, he actually experienced what we experience. When he became a man, he felt it. And you may still wonder, you know, could Jesus really experience what I struggle with? You know, Jesus never got married or had kids. You know, can you really understand when I get angry or yell at my spouse or children? You know, maybe you wonder, you know, they didn't have cars back then. Could Jesus really have empathized with me when I experience road rage and yell at the driver in front of me? You know, the computer and internet wasn't created back then. So could he really understand the temptation to look at pornography or some other addictive habit on the computer? And it's true, you know, some of these expressions or tools are different and have changed over the course of time. But understand that sin's essential nature remains unchanged. He knew what it felt like to be tempted to unrighteous anger. He knew the temptation to hate those who would seek to harm or hurt or betray him. He knew what it was like to be tempted to lust. Scripture tells us Jesus can sympathize with us because he experienced all the temptations we faced. But you may still argue, did Jesus really experience temptation if he didn't sin? You know, if he never sinned, Jesus was out of touch with how strong temptation could be. But today, C.S. Lewis masterfully wrote a response to that objection. He writes this, he says, you can read as, "...a silly idea is current." that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like to, to uh, you know, struggle with temptation an hour later. That is why bad people in one sense know very little about badness. They have a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ Jesus, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full extent what temptation means. He is the only complete realist. So don't be afraid to come to Jesus because you feel he can't relate to you and what you're going through. Sure, the form may have changed, but he has experienced the same temptation you were struggling with. And he resisted all the way to his death. He understands what you feel. And the author continues. In addition to exhorting the readers to stand firm, the author calls them to draw near. Verse sixteen: Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So why is it we should draw near? Because of Jesus' continuing empowerment. His continuing empowerment. Remember once again how in the Old Testament, the high priest, not anyone else could enter the presence of God. And even the high priest could only do so one time a year. No one else could enter his presence. The high priest could not do it on any other day except the Day of Atonement. Because if they did, they could be struck dead. But contrast this to what it says in Hebrews. You know, in the verse, in the verb tense, in the original language, the verb used for let us approach means to continually approach. And the verb or in the word confidence means bold frankness. So the author is telling his readers to constantly draw near to God in boldness. Why? Because Jesus has ascended into heaven and is interceding on our behalf. And when we come to God boldly, verse 16 tells us, we can expect that God will give us mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Mercy that we need to forgive our past sins and failures, and grace to help us with our present and future struggles. And it will come, as it is promised, at the right time. It might not come at the time we expect or in the way we'd necessarily like, but we can assure it, it will come according to God's perfect timing. So nothing you have done, or nothing regarding your present status should keep you from approaching God's throne. So what is it that keeps you from fully coming to the Lord? You know, maybe it's the things inside of us that continue to haunt us. Maybe once again, it's a lack of recognition of who God is. You know, maybe we'd still like to be in the Old Testament. Maybe we'd think it'd be easier to have this mediator priest who will act as a go-between between between us and God. You know, like the the, uh, Israelites in Exodus, when they saw God, you know, they told Moses, like, you know, you be the one to approach God you know, don't let us go to God because we're going to die because God's too holy. But the author in Hebrews challenges that thought and he says, you know, don't think this way. Don't be afraid to go to God because Jesus is there and he's paved the way for us not not only, you know, to get to God but to approach God and to do so boldly. You know, we all have needs and we all struggle with sin. And in recognizing that in our own lives, you know, we deal with it in different ways. You know, we can believe that it's not really that big of a problem and we can handle it on our own and we don't need anyone else. We can acknowledge that we can't handle it on our own and feel that there's nothing we can do about it, so we get depressed. We can acknowledge these things in our lives but try to avoid the issue by just filling our lives with you know possessions or other pleasures. We can understand that Jesus came to earth more than two thousand years ago and humbled himself to become a man and became this perfect high priest who is now sitting at the throne of grace and offers mercy and grace to help us. You know, what is the path that you are following? And what is it that keeps you from coming to Jesus in full surrender? In the commentary I was reading, the author shares part of a book by Anne Dillard, who wrote that when she was a young girl on a cold Christmas Eve, she came home from a late dinner. She had taken off her winter coat and was warming herself by the heater when suddenly there was a knock on the door. And when they opened the door, a person entered whom Dillard never wanted to hear from. And that was Santa Claus. The family called, Look, look, look who's here. But she ran upstairs. She shared that she feared Santa Claus because she had this conception that Santa Claus was this old man whom you never saw, but who nevertheless saw you. He knew when you'd be bad or good. And she writes, I had been bad. Santa stood in the doorway shouting, Merry Christmas. But Annie never came down. And she writes that she found out later that she she discovered that Santa wasn't really real, it was just her neighbor, Mrs. White, dressed, dressed up in costume. And Annie liked Mrs. White because she constantly reached out to her as a young girl. But one day, six months after the Santa incident, she ran from Mrs. White again. And this time, the incident involved a magnifying glass. She shared that Mrs. White focused the pinpoint of sunlight on Annie's hand to let her feel the heat that was caused by the magnifying glass you know, pinpoint radiation, and it burned her by accident. She ripped her hand away, and she dashed home crying. Mrs. White called after her, trying to explain you know, what, was, what happened, but to no avail. And reflecting on all this, Dillard writes, you know, even now, I wonder if I meet God. Will he take and hold my bare hand in his and focus his eye on my palm and kindle that spot and let me burn? But no, it is I who misunderstood everything and let everybody down. Mrs. White, God, I am sorry I I ran from you. I am still running, running from that knowledge that I, that love from which there is no refuge. For you meant only love, and I felt only fear and pain. So once in Israel love to us, love came to us incarnate, stood in the doorway between two worlds, and we were all afraid. So are you afraid or doubtful? You know, believe that you are not that bad. And Jesus is that good. And as I wrap up and and we move to our song of response, I'm just going to have our worship team sing a song over you. When I was preparing uh, this message, a song came to mind. And when I was looking up the song and watching the videos, I ran across a video where the artist shares why she wrote this song and how it came about. And then I knew why I thought of this song. So I'm going to let you watch the video. And then the worship team's going to come up and share the song with you. And as they sing, I would just ask you to let the holy speak to you, Holy Spirit speak to you through the lyrics of this song, and through this text in Hebrews. Can you play the video?
1: Here I was, potentially getting a divorce and alone and overwhelmed. my husband left me and I became a single mother of three but I realized that the first step is believing that there's hope and sometimes the fog or the black of whatever it is you're going through is so thick and so dark that you can't see past it you can't believe that there's actually light that's gonna ever poke through God says in his word that um, he will do exceedingly abundantly more than we can ask or imagine his promises are true he started changing me, and I fell in love with Jesus for the first real time in my life and so this artist who had spent pretty much the entire time saying that fame and fortune are fleeting but making a difference in someone's life lasts for an eternity although a true statement is not truly how my heart felt. In my heart, I really kind of wanted to be famous. I really wanted to be rich and I secretly thought I was better than everybody else and I'm not and I don't care about that anymore and I realized I want to be new. I don't want to be that girl who's living for herself anymore and I I started to change and, and wanted to live for him and here my marriage is being restored and my family is being made whole again but not just as a woman or as a wife or as a mother or as a Christian or as an artist but all of them combined I wanted to start over and tell this story in a whole new light and so that's where Lord I'm Ready Now begins.